Welcome to the Stray Dog Film Match, where three stray dogs have bonded over our love of movies. I'm Colin. My name's Ross. And I'm Ian. And today we're talking about the cult classic horror, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Which we should mention is Ian's pick and one of Ian's favorite films. So yep. he's more than enthused to talk about this. But I'm putting a clamp on uh, Ian because our podcasts are getting too long. <laughs> so I'm setting a timer on my phone for 30 minutes, okay? Okay. Uh, starting right now. Are you guys okay with this timer? Yeah, that's fine. Okay. I may rage against the machine, but we'll, we'll see in, in due time. <laughs> All right, well, we, we already used up 10 <laughs> seconds, so let's get to it. Quick, Ian, uh, what's the movie about? Texas Chainsaw Massacre is about five kids who are going to a home owned by their father, but end up getting kidnapped by a group of homicidal cannibals. Oh, that's what they're going to? They're going to a home owned by their father? Yeah. I'm going to have to reject your hypothesis, unfortunately. Why? What? They keep talking about it through the whole thing. Originally, the plan isn't to go to the grandfather's house, it's to see if their grandfather's grave has been defiled. Because there were news reports in the beginning that there were grave robberies happening, and there was that brutal uh, piece of art where some freak took a bunch of different body parts and messed them together for that big thing that we Mm -hmm. saw in the beginning of the movie. Oh, right. And so... But the general gist of it is five kids who are on a road trip get kidnapped by cannibals. Yes. Yeah. But the reason they're on the road trip is because of the shenanigans that the cannibals have already done. Yeah. Yes. All right. Now I understand the movie. All right. So this this was my first time seeing the movie. Um, Ian and Colin, you guys have a lot more experience with it, right? So do you guys want to sum up your feelings and then I could uh, jump in? I mean, Ian, like a filmmaker that you love talking about is Mr. Rob Zombie. <laughs> You're a big fan of his work. Yes. And you you, you, you love talking about this fella. Mm-hmm. And so I read an essay by Rob Zombie about seeing Texas Chainsaw Massacre when it released in 1974. And he definitely said something along the lines that not only is it one of the most important films of the 1970s next to uh, Jaws, uh, Apocalypse Now, Godfather, etc., etc., but that it's also his North Star. This is the movie that has guided him, I feel like, through his filmmaking journey more than any other film. Absolutely. I see that. That makes sense. Absolutely. Especially when you look at House of a Thousand Corpses. Yeah, I was thinking about that the whole time. It's essentially Texas Chainsaw. It's Texas Chainsaw meets Rocky Horror, which is something that Rob Zombie actually said in an interview. And it's something where Texas Chainsaw, despite people saying, oh, it's so gory, oh, it's the goriest movie ever made, it's so tame by today. And especially comparing it to not just the remake, or remakes, I should say, but um, the abundance of sequels that came out afterwards. Hmm. It's a series that, again, should have been the one-note movie, but to get into the film, instead of sort of going on that route, um, it's something that anytime I watch it, it, whether the sun is blaring outside or it's super dark at night, 
there's this atmosphere of suspense, uneasiness, and with so many different shots of just dead things. There's just something that's so off. And when these kids are finally kidnapped, it's literally descending into hell. I mean, there's there's weird vibes like from the get go. Yeah. And just the way the movie's presented. It has a, a weird gritty look to it. It's like is it shot on like sixteen millimeter? Like I think it, so. it you know it's I'm not entirely it's pretty, sure. Pretty grainy looking and then like mm-hmm. also the way it's edited, even when nothing bad has happened yet, it like feels like something's wrong, you know. I think this is one of the most well edited films of all time. I would uh, make that claim out there that the editing in this film perfectly encapsulate the atmosphere of the movie. Mm-hmm. I definitely agree with that. For sure. There is one part, though, where I'm like, OK, they're dragging this out too much. Wait, hey, time out. Time out. Real quick. Yes. Go yeah. ahead. Ian. Spoilers. I know this movie is over 40 plus years old, but in case someone has not seen it. See it. Yeah, no, see it. it is. It's not. I didn't think it was that scary, but I guess I'm a brave boy. Ross is known Fall and Ride for being a very brave boy, folks. So take that with a grain of salt. I think it's a very spooky movie. You know what it also what reminds were you saying, me Ian? of? It's sort of a modern day Dracula. In a way of, it's this small group that is traveling across a road that they don't know. There are people who keep telling them, stay away from there. They're don't go that way. You know, maybe wait. Maybe maybe see something else. And the house is like Castle Dracula. The all the homicidal cannibals, they're bloodsuckers. Yeah. They literally chop people up and they drink out their blood. They eat their flesh. It's the same thing about Dracula. Yeah, the old man sucking on the girl's finger when they cut it. Yeah, especially. He's very vampiric, yeah. That's true. Is this basically the first slasher movie as we know it today? No. No. It's actually, there are films, I think it was Peeping Tom. Peeping Tom by Michael Powell is definitely there. Uh, another contender yes. is Bay of Blood by Mario Bava. Yeah. The most ridiculous claim is that Halloween is the first Slasher movie. Yeah, that's bullshit. I feel like Halloween is closer to what the majority of modern horror movies are. Yeah. Whereas like Texas Chainsaw feels like an even more primitive version of that. Yeah, it's... Halloween set the ground rules. Yeah, Texas Chainsaw isn't the first one. I would say Peeping Tom. At least that's my opinion. But at the same time, with Texas Chainsaw, there's it's definitely, it feels like a slasher movie. It doesn't necessarily act like one. There's only a couple moments where we see and hear cliches of, oh, it's the kids that are smoking weed or, oh yeah, you know, going against people. By the same token, like, it, it's almost like a spider's web type of movie. In the same vein that Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho is. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, they, they lure you into the stronghold and they kill you. With, with most hmm. slasher movies, it's an active killing, terrorizing a town. And going after kids and seeking people to kill. From the get-go. Whereas with yeah. Texas Chainsaw Massacre yeah. and Psycho, it's more like drawing them into the domain. Which is a little bit interesting when you think about the history of Texas as the Lone Star State. Hmm. I got a take, actually. Uh, to be honest, uh, here's my hot take. I appreciate this movie's aesthetic and its place in history. But personally, it didn't do much for me because... 
I, it just seems, and by modern times and current day, it just feels kind of basic compared to everything that's come after it and like built up on top All of right. it. All right. Yeah, that's a hot take. I'm not a fan of the hot take. Blisteringly hot take. All right, let me let me finish my hot take. Let me finish. Proceed. Yeah. Let me finish my hot Proceed. take. Proceed. I don't know if it has that much to say about the world compared to something like Psycho or Jaws. The most I could glean as like having something to say socially as a horror film is about maybe the Texas meat industry. Okay, Colin, do you want to go first? Because I, I really want to <laughs> save mine because I got to rant about this hot take. <laughs> okay, I will go first. I will continue okay, upon my Lone Star <laughs> theory. Toby Hoople, the director, and his co-writer Kim Henkel are both Texas boys, but they weren't necessarily the biggest fans of the home state. There's been a lot of social occasions throughout the years of Texas revolting, against American government. There's a plethora of those across the board. And so this movie's almost a depiction of what happens when outsiders try to go into Texas, I think. But aren't they aren't they already Texans? They're already Texans, so that's the only thing. Yeah, see that's like that 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 theory's already this is just Texans getting killed by Texans. That's one theory. The other theory that Guillermo del Toro is also a fan of because this movie turned him into a vegetarian. And this is something that Toby Harper has gone on record saying is that Texas Chainsaw Massacre is a pro-vegetarian film. That's the one that that's what I was saying is the one thing I was gleaning is about the horrors of the, the meat industry, because like they're talking about how they kill cattle. The, that girl gets hung up on a meat hook. The sausages they're eating are implied to be human meat stuff like that you know i like that's that that's the most i could glean from it is isn't meat fucked up and gross but that's a very powerful statement especially to be making in the 70s oh for sure well i mean is it like because like they're already past the hippie era it's not that deep of a thing to say you know but in texas in texas i guess that is bold to say in texas to be vegetarian yeah so the thing that i always take away from this is that they set this up as a documentary. There were so many things of like, this is based on a true story. That's bullshit. Yeah, of course. (laughs) But that's kind of the point. The point that, you know, this is past the hippie age, but in the hippie age, there was Watergate. So the government was consistently lying to everybody during that time period. So basically, this whole thing is based on a true story. Nobody really gave a shit if they were lying or not. Hmm. So I really see this more politically because, yeah, it's about the meat industry. It's about taking away the nuclear family, people who have these jobs that are now being replaced by technology that is quicker, cheaper, faster. And it's something where it's driving people who helped build many parts of society or early sort of American culture, especially something that's like as red, white, and blue as Texas is, or what it's been portrayed as in the past. And seeing the degeneration of it is something that I think what they're trying to say is, this is where, this is how bad we've gotten in our country. 
and nobody's doing anything about it. And that's particularly salient to uh, modern day civilization in America because automation is continually taking away more and more jobs and there are more and more Americans being fed up about it. Wait, so is this where the chainsaw comes in? Is like the chainsaw replaced the hacksaw? Is that no replace the hammer? I don't like... No, the difference is that in the movie... People are, or the, the cannibals, originally they worked at a uh, meat factory where they would kill the cattle and they would use hammers. And then now during the time that the movie takes place in, they had a cattle gun, Oh, which was a simple thing. Because they're talking about how it doesn't work as well. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't work as well, even though I see. all the cannibals are saying, oh, that's the best way. No, that's the best way. It, it tastes better, you know, that way. And that's why they do the same thing to Sally once they sort of start a dinner. It's something where that's a big part of it. It's also interesting that Toby Hoople may be pointing out that the old way may not be working as well. Because during that dinner scene, they try to have Grandpa kill uh, Marilyn Bones' character. And he can't do it. He can't do it. He continually fails to do it. Yeah. And she escapes. That was the part I thought was dragged out a bit. I was like, okay, all right. Is, when is she going to run already? <laughs> it's also in, it's kind of an intentionally comedic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's funny that and there is a guy who worked at the gas station. <laughs> Anytime the cook is going up to the van, he follows and he starts wiping everything. And then when the cook leaves, then he leaves and then goes back and forth. It, it's a funny little gag. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it's... It's something where the movie, to me, when you read into it, it's fascinating, it's scary, and it's something that feels so prevalent to just the generations that have come after it. What's the context of this film, like, production-wise? Oh, Like, how did this... Production-wise, it was a night. Like, how did this get made to be... Like, because this feels like a super indie film yes yes it was it was made for sixty thousand dollars when you look at the crew it's it's less than 30 people it didn't even have a unit production manager there was only six people in the camera department it was very low budget and there was no location manager and what's more is that they only had one short for Leatherface, the the actor Gunnar mm-hmm. Hansen. Yeah, Gunnar Hansen. And so yeah. he had to wear the same sword in a Texas heat wave <laughs> for each day was above 100 degrees. And by the end of the shoot, no one wanted to sit next to Gunnar because he smelled <laughs> so terrible. That's that's why they're running from him. <laughs> he just stank. I was just thinking, like, is there? So much of it, the dialogue feels so loose. Like, I'm wondering, like, did they even have a finished script? And I mean this in a good way. They did. Yeah. Okay, because, like, I feel like the performances do feel, like, especially when they're just walking around the house and talking about their grandparents or whatever, like, it feels so loose and, and chill, you know? Oh, yeah. And that, like, that I found kind of interesting. What's interesting is that the screenwriter, Kim Henkel, went on to write with the pioneer of the Texas indie film industry named Igor Purnell and he did a movie with him called Last Night at the Alamo which was basically about a bow called the Alamo doing its last night and how the people were banding together to team up for it and I really want to see that film because 
I feel like Texas Chainsaw Massacre is a movie that is saying, don't go to Texas. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. You know what I was kind of thinking about? This is like the... You know how I'm in love with the film True Stories mm-hmm. by uh, David Byrne? Yes. This is like the opposite of that. And I, I'm wondering <laughs> if Kim Henkel, the writer of this film, was getting a lot of notes from people being like, man, you you so made our homestead look like a horrible place to be in. It is. But <laughs> but he, he then w- was like, okay, I'll team up with Ego Pinnell, this guy this indie filmmaker who wants to capture uh natural life in texas and create last night at the alamo maybe as a contradiction or as a nexus point to texas chainsaw massacre so i would love to see those two movies as a double feature so also um i do want to ask for the two of you because i'll say real quick um my favorite, because I want to talk about like some of the kills or the, some of the uh, the scares. The one that always gets me isn't really like the, not the first one where he bashes the guy in the head with the hammer, but when he places the girl on the meat hook. Yeah, that's fucked. That literally took to, the first time I saw it as a fifteen year old, and even still, any time that happens, I'm like when she gets placed on there when her breath goes away so does mine because it's terrifying like Hmm. she's alive but she's stuck on this fucking meat hook and she just can't breathe and get off of it and she's watching her boyfriend get you know sawed in half or you know shit like that what is equally interesting about that is that they don't even use a sound effect to when she gets on the meat hook. Yeah, yeah. There's no squish or yeah. anything like that. Like you just see who. See that's the see that's why I'm that's why I was talking about like why this film didn't work for me because it's like one of the first to do it is like I wasn't convinced by the effect. I could just tell she was standing in front of a hook on like an apple box. Yeah, but that's also like something that I really enjoy about horror is it lets you go into the imagination. Yeah, no, I think it just didn't work for me because maybe i'm just desensitized to like more gnarly and like graphic in your face stuff that like this just seems like basic by today's standards but like again like i respect the like aesthetics and the the vibe and the and its place in history like i don't want to poo poo on it too much you know the thing is what separates this film from more gnarly depictions of cannibalism and and extreme violence is just the filmic language in which it tells it you know what I mean? Like the the editing, the camera movements, which by the way, there are some really pristine dolly moves in this movie yeah. mm-hmm. that no one talks about. But the dolly movements are great. But the filmic language in which Toby Hooper suits this movie is so primal, it, it really taps into a part of you that is an animal. Mm-hmm. I really like the sequence at the dinner table. Oh my god! And how it escalates into the the the, the, the super extreme close-ups on her eye. eye. Yeah, yeah. That shit was really cool and like creepy because like just seeing all the veins in the eye, like you don't mm-hmm. normally see that, and like that that felt very visceral and like you felt that discomfort. You know what was even crazier with that with that scene too is that it's not just her screaming; it's them making fun of her scream. Yeah like that also i could like see how influential that 
the close-ups of that guy mocking her are on like future trash cinema mm-hmm. so like i can see that 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 brand of villainy in like the toxic avenger and i i can see that in like rob zombie movies like that 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 kind of goofiness mm-hmm. i feel like this was it was like just the right amount where it's like oh i can see the motivation of this goofiness he's like literally mocking her pain which is yeah. terrifying because like they're in control the whole time the way people imitate that now it just feels like goofy faces for the sake of goofy faces mm-hmm. whereas this this like it actually felt like motivated like it's it, like it felt sincerely like sadistic those it, faces he was doing and i feel like what works so well for that is the genuineness of those three performances from the cook the hitchhiker and leatherface what, mm-hmm. what's their are they like they're is, related is the cook like is the cook their dad and then so i'll tell the you two are their sons the grandfather is obviously grandpa the cook is the son of the grandfather and then leatherface and the hitchhiker are the sons of the cook okay and what what exactly is the hitchhiker's job the hitchhiker's job is to take pictures of potential victims oh i get it that's why he did that in the beginning when he's in the in the van yeah so and he's able to mark it too he really it gave too. away a lot of his game when talking to them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And also, he's supposed to keep Leatherface in check. And that's why uh, the cook gets so angry. Which, By the way, when the cook gets angry, it's really scary. Mm-hmm. I don't like it when he gets angry. Cause especially when he's beating up Leatherface. What's so discomforting about that situation is that... Gunnar Hansen is so much bigger than the actor who plays the cook. Yeah. He could easily drop him in a second. But the cook is just beating him over the head with a broomstick. And Leatherface, who's a mentally handicapped character, is just saying gibberish. And I would really argue that Gunnar Hansen's performance in this movie is one of the best performances of all time. And I did some research on it. Toby Hooper allowed Gunnar Hansen to develop Leatherface as he saw fit. Hmm. So Hansen decided that Leatherface was mentally handicapped and never learned to talk properly. So he went to a school for the mentally handicapped and watched how they move and listen to them talk to get a feel for the character. And he also tried his best to make his portrayal as non-offensive as he mm-hmm. could. So this is as non-offensive as possible? Is <laughs> a guy with a chainsaw? Many fans, including those who are mentally handicapped say he succeeded yeah okay and i would say that yes he he definitely is a maniac Mm -hmm. but i think it's he does it with so much empathy for the character Mm -hmm. and so much love for him that i wouldn't consider it offensive in a more important way i would say that it's an even greater indictment of America's treatment towards the mentally ill. Yeah. Oh, because he's led to be a guy that just chases people around with a chainsaw because he's not given a healthy environment. Exactly. All right. Okay, I get it now. Yeah, that's interesting. Like, he's just, a, he's just like, he doesn't know what he's doing. He literally doesn't have an identity. He, uh, one of the most disturbing elements of the movie is that he literally takes off the faces of people and puts them on himself. Yeah. He has yeah. three different faces that he uses. Hmm. Okay, real quick, because we're running out of time with this. Yeah, go ahead. The thing is, with those, uh, especially like when you were saying like the cook beating him, sort of the family roles, not the genetic or hereditary ones. The family roles are really... The cook is like the angry husband who comes home. Leatherface is like the wife that he beats up. And then <laughs> and then the hitchhiker is the insane neurotic teenager. 
And it's something I know since we're running out of time, I do want to go over oh, yeah. a little bit of the remake and a little bit of the series real quick. And just saying it, I really like the remake. It's what are the not ones great, worth seeing? but it's fun. The 2003 remake. I know you hate it, Colin. Give me a minute. Um, it is the entire opposite of what the original is. I totally get why people hate it. I just like it because it was something that still tried to stay true to at least the tone of it. And I feel like it accomplished more of the lines of being gory than anything else. But I do love the sheriff character. I think that's the freakiest part of that movie. And then also, real quick too, before time runs out, you should say our rating for... The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. All right. Me first. Yes, you first. All right. It's like a 7 out of 10. It's all right. It's pretty good. Colin? I would... I agree with Rob Zombie. This is one of the most important films of 70s filmmaking. I would argue that it's an experimental film that puts the boundaries of whole filmmaking, Mm -hmm. like... Uh, decades into the future it's revolutionary this is a five star film 10 out of 10 yeah i'm I'm gonna say like definitely five out of five 10 out of 10 100 out of 100 it's one of my favorite films ever made it's to me still one of the scariest things i've ever seen and it's something that i absolutely can just put on and watch oh yeah I, I could watch this movie to the end of my days. Mm-hmm. I mean, may, maybe I would find more meaning in future watches, but like to me, it, it didn't go beyond uh, eating meat is fucked up and look at this this crazy family. Like it didn't, the messaging didn't quite go that deep for me, uh, but I do admire its innovativeness in low budget filmmaking, running around with a chainsaw you know like that 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 shit's yeah cool. speaking of running around with a chainsaw this movie probably has the best ending of all time arguably oh yeah oh my god that was so great of him dancing around Th- that that ending scene is amazing that blunt cut was yeah. just it's so good after that little battle mm-hmm. it does with the chainsaw Love it. yeah that it, that 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 was beautiful and it just cuts it just cuts. There's no fade out. Yeah, that's it. I also love how yeah. the chainsaw dancing is like intercut with the final girls laughing maniacally. Screaming and laughing. Oh, She's yeah. finally She's escaped. finally free. She's insane. It's a very chaotic ending, and it, it, it works. She tries to get on the truck. She can't get in the yep. truck, and so she has to get in the pickup <laughs> truck. It's wild. It's insane. I fucking love it. Yeah. All right. Check out the movie. We're out of time. We did it. We did it. We kept our conversation under 30 minutes. Uh, give yourselves a pat on the back and a little applause. There's so much more I want to talk about. But I will respect the times that we put on ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, we're adding a new segment to the show that we haven't formulated it a name, but I guess we'll call it like Stray Dog Catch-Up, where we just talk about stuff we watched on our own, independent of the podcast. I have a name! Okay. I got an idea for a name. What's the name? I think it should be called the Stray Dog Film Corner. <laughs> That's just an alternate name for the podcast. No, 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 because those, those the lounge, which is basically where a lot of, you know, great minds of, of film theory and filmmaking come together and talk about filmmaking. I'm not necessarily talking about ourselves. It's just the world that we're trying to create. 
We're trying to create a discourse for film lovers to talk about film theory, the love for filmmaking, and how that watching older movies can enhance our ability to make better films. That's the world we want to create. I, I'd, but, rather, I'd rather but, call it, like, wait, side shit. I don't wait, know. Straight dog wait, side I, shit. I did not finish my point. <laughs> I did not finish my point. Okay. I think that the stray dog film corner is basically one of the stray dogs in an armchair by the file. And people are going up to us and they're like, so, stray dog Colin, stray dog Ian, stray dog Ross, what movies have you seen recently? So we're, get, we're, get, we're getting up from the lounge and walking to the corner? No, we're already in the corner of the lounge. And people are coming to the corner to ask what we've watched recently. But people are already have already come to the lounge to hear our thoughts about the main film. But but they're not in our corner. I don't think Here's calling it a location do. works. <laughs> I think it should just be like, like mini like mini reviews, mini mini recommendations. Let's figure out a name later. Let's figure out a name later. I don't like the word mini. All right. Colin, what did you watch the, the last couple weeks? <laughs> That's a great question. Uh, let me look at my letterbox, which I am totally not plugging right now. What's your letterbox account? Oh, that's a great question, Ross. It's it's called Colin Wheel. It's just my name. And it's a photo of myself at my previous job, which I have just quit, thankfully. Wait, how do you spell Colin Weir? Because your name is spelled weird. The correct spelling of this name for... That particular director who misspelled my name and needs to go back in the credits and change my name. The correct spelling for our name is C-O-L-L-I-N-W-E-H-R. Cool. All right. So what 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 did you watch the last couple weeks since since we saw Ant-Man together? There was a very good movie that I saw in theaters on Saturday. It's called Creed 3. I recommend it. I saw Creed 3 as well. I thought for Michael B. Jordan's, like, first directorial debut, it was awesome. Weird how Rocky's not in it, but yeah. (laughs) Very weird. What I loved about the movie, too, is that, and a lot of people were scared about this when they were watching the uh, interviews for the movie before it came out, is that Michael B. Jordan said that he took a lot of inspiration from anime and how he uh, choreographed the fight scene at the end. And a lot of people were like, oh, great, it's going to be so over the top. But no, the stylization of the final fight is phenomenal. It's very visual. I loved it. And I saw the moments that it took from, too. It takes a moment from the Son Goku and Frieza fight scene in Dragon Ball Z, and it puts it in the movie. And I pointed like Leonardo <laughs> DiCaprio in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And I'm like, wait a second, that's from Dragon Ball Z. And I got really excited. So thank you, Michael B. Jordan. You made my day on Saturday. All right, so what do you, what do you rate Creed 3? Four out of five. Nice. All right, Ian, what did, what did you see? So plug in my letterbox first is uh, it's the movie Baker. And I mean, my name is technically Ian Baker, but my handle is the movie Baker. Nice. And it's just a photo of me looking completely confused. A photo which I believe was shot in my living room. Yes, I believe so. Um, So what I saw new this uh, past weekend, I didn't get the chance to go to the theater, but I watched about like, I think I saw like four movies this past weekend. Serenity, which is a Joss Whedon movie, which based on his uh, TV show that got canceled, Firefly. Oh. It's like a... Speaking of canceled people. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I'm not going to get into that. Um, uh, <laughs> but 
basically, I think it's a conclusion or it's a setup to a conclusion. I don't know. It's weird, but I've only seen an episode or two of the show. But the movie on its own is a really fun space western. Okay. And the only thing I have an issue is the third act because it gets really predictable. Outside of that, though, it's a lot of fun. And I definitely recommend it. It's definitely a four out of five. Ian, would you say that you should watch Firefly before watching Serenity? Oh, absolutely. I was totally lost. Oh, so Serenity is the end to Firefly? I guess it ends with like a cliffhanger, so... Whatever. All right. I'm confused. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, exactly. Okay. So is so Serenity is in the same continuity as Firefly? Is that... Yes. Okay. Gotcha. All right. Mm-hmm. Anything... What else did you watch? Uh, so I married an axe murderer. Yes! Oh, nice. I love that movie. And it was the most okay comedy I've ever seen in my entire life. <laughs> so I married an axe model is a hood classic. So here's the other thing, too. This is a music video for There She Goes. The fucking song plays four times to the entire fucking movie. <laughs> it's, it's, it's just like, it's either a dark comedy, a rom-com, or a music video for that. And it's compromise is just... Be everything. Don't don't choose. Just be everything. And that's my that's my biggest issue with it. It's a buffet of a movie. I love that film so much. I feel like that's the only film that makes San Francisco look like such a lovely place to live. Oh, it was beautiful looking. Beautiful and a beat poet who's unemployed can have an apartment there too. I mean, how awesome is that? Well, I'll say this, it reminds me of Friends, but it came out a year before hmm. Friends. Um, I see. I can see that. And I also say three out of five. Nice. So it's definitely worth a watch, but just know that it's just, it's weird, not in the sense of what it's about, but it's just weird in the way it's structured and what it wants to do. Hmm. All right. Could I photo plug So I Married an Axe Motor? Okay, sure. So I Married an Axe Motor is a very important real family movie. My father knows every line of it. He probably quotes at least once a week. So I certainly have rose-tinted glasses when approaching So I Married an Axe Model. I feel the same way about the first Dawson Powers, which you still haven't seen. Ross, I will continue never having seen the first Austin Powers movie just because I love how disgruntled you are over the fact that I have not seen the first Austin Powers movie. We will see about that, <laughs> Colin. We will see about that. It brings me great joy because you treat... Austin Powers Man of Mystery like it's Sinless List or It's a Wonderful <laughs> Life. You you treat it like a movie that everyone needs to see. I mean, it's yes. just like, how could you have not seen it? It's like a, an iconic <laughs> pop cultural touchstone. Like, you know, the, you know the AMC Garden State at the Paramus Mall? Yes. Right? You know that big mural with like Marilyn Monroe and R2-D2 <laughs> and all that? You know who's on it? Austin Powers. Austin Powers. Austin Powers is on it because it's an iconic film. I saw the other two Austin Powers. I didn't know that was the first one. But you you didn't even know. You didn't even know that Austin Powers was was frozen in the 1960s. You didn't even know that. You didn't I, have that context. I thought he was just a wacky guy. I thought he was just No, a- he's wacky. <laughs> For a reason, and he learns a lesson in the first one, and like... I thought he was a hipster that wanted to bring back 60s mojo. There's a reason why, though. <laughs> anyway. Alright. Okay, my turn. Alright. Yeah. My letterboxed is Sternly Ross. It's like I'm, I'm signing a letter, right? 
Uh, <laughs> S-T-E-R-N-L-Y-R-O-S-S. I watched a few things. I, I also saw Creed 3. I thought it was awesome. Goes hard. The fights are great. And I also watched... A couple other things I watched was... I saw Inside. Really? Not the Bo Burnham film. Uh, it's uh, the one, the new one with Willem Dafoe. Uh, it's not great. It's like kind of... Bo- it gets kind of boring. It's like basically if you haven't... You might have seen the trailer. Willem Dafoe, he's an art thief. And he gets stuck inside this fancy apartment of an artist that he's trying to rob. He's stuck trying to survive in this fancy smart apartment where the where the tap water is turned off and you know he's sweating and stuff cuz the automatic ac and stuff yeah it's just i think the thing it's trying to be like artsy castaway but the thing is is that Willem Dafoe is just such an intense man that i don't know if i can that that like a movie with just Willem Dafoe is you know something to like stay entertained with he works better as like a supporting actor than he does as like a one man show. Whereas like, you know, Tom Hanks, for example, is very charming and likable and you kind of want to see him succeed. Whereas Willem Dafoe, he's very like serious and disgruntled and you're like, okay, this is just uncomfortable. But, you know, the the cinematography and the production design is gorgeous. So I, I give it like, it's like a three and a half out of five. And then I also saw John Wick Chapter 4, which is so fucking good, guys. I've been told that it's like the peak of action cinema. You gotta see John Wick mm-hmm. Chapter 4. Like, you know what's funny is that the John Wick movies, like, they, they kind of occupy a similar headspace to the Mission Impossible movies, because I see them, <laughs> I'm thrilled when I see them, and then, like, I don't know, a month later, totally exits my memory. But <laughs> in my current state of mind, uh, John Wick Chapter 4 is amazing. I don't remember shit about 1, 2, and 3, especially 2 and 3. Uh, but, oh my god, the stair scene is amazing. There's a really cool extended crane shot, uh, and there's a very good boy in it. There's a very nice dog in this movie. You guys will like it. Ross, can I ask you a question about this film? Yes. Does Jason Manjakis skid a fight scene in this movie? Uh, no, Jason Manzukis is not in it. But what? even better, even better than Jason Manzukis, it's got Donnie Yen. Oh, that's cool. Okay. And he's but he's blind. I've seen this before. I've seen this in Rogue One. Damn it! But they do it better. They actually do it good this time, and it's amazing. <laughs> Watching Donnie Yen blind fight is the most entertaining, funny, and like epic shit ever. It's so fucking good. Like, I want a spinoff movie with his character, Kane. It's so good. They're so... Like, they're so... The way they handle blind Donnie Yen is so much more inventive than Rogue One. That's that's all I gotta say. It's so good. So we want to talk a little bit about the thing we said we were working on, but isn't currently happening. Yes. Who wants to lead the charge with this? I might as well, I guess. (laughs) Director, go ahead. Okay, we did a lot of prep for Cosmic Coffee. Short horror sci-fi. Did we talk about it a bunch on the podcast? A little bit. We talked about it like in, in like one of the first episodes. And at the end of the last episode, I pretty much explained that we're not we're holding off on the podcast to focus on Cosmic Coffee. <laughs> <laughs> we had to take a break due to the fact that doing both at the same time wasn't possible. 
Yeah, we need to get ready with pre-production because we were gearing up to shoot this thing next month. Yeah, and I was doing a shit ton of work. You guys had your own busy schedules. Oh, yeah. It just sort of became a nightmare for the three of us to even figure out how we were going to do it. Well, the thing is, everything was in place. All the pieces were set to strike. The dilemma is we didn't raise any money. Well, we raised some, but then we gave it back because we didn't get enough. We raised $750. And what was our budget? That what would what do we need to raise? Thirty eight hundred. Yeah, I want to talk about something real quick. Is we shot the video for it, the pitch video. I think the one of the issues that came across was even though we shot the pitch video, I feel like if we shot a scene or a bit or something from the actual script, I think that also could have brought in. A little more too instead of just us talking about it yeah i mean yeah i think character i think character carl that crowdfunding campaign worked really well because i had the actual actors that are going to be in the movie in the in the campaign video that helped i mean my theory my philosophy is that all you need for a crowdfunding video to like work is that just like make it funny and explain what the movie is right um and that will get people interested uh i, I think a big part of it is that we came out we our experience with crowdfunding was for funding our thesis films i think the main reason people gave us money for our thesis films is because they wanted to help us graduate college yeah (laughs) exactly that's what i was leading up to this was a very good crowdfunding campaign i don't think that this was a shitty campaign i think the fact of the matter is is that we are no longer in college and crowdfunders treat college graduates the same way that our Republicans treat newborn babies. <laughs> they really care about the fetus. They really care about the college student. Yeah. But once you're graduated, <laughs> you're on your own. You're on your own. Fuck off. But yeah, I think, I mean, I think what, what really like what we needed, what we need is to like build up some more clout before we can start doing bigger projects. Exactly. So, you know, what we're going to do is, you know, we're going to, you know, keep doing this podcast when we can. And also we're going to be doing some smaller short, short films with no budget. Yes. And hopefully those are, you know, funny or fun or exciting and cool. We're trying to make some cool, small stuff. And and if we just keep working at that, then we can work our way up to, you know, making a more high end short film and then maybe even a feature in the future. Of course. A future in the future. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, you know, we learned a lot about patience and uh, our, our, our current place in the industry. This brings me back to what Todd Field said to me at the screening of Todd. He told me patience. Yep. He said that to get to where you want to be in the filmmaking world, you got to be able to accept failure and keep on moving forward. Mm-hmm. And I mm-hmm. think that's definitely what we learned from this. We learned a lot of things from this, actually. Ian and I were thinking about an idea. We were mulling it over about making Cosmic Coffee into a radio play because we already uh. have the cast in place. The dilemma is, is that... I don't think that many people actually listen to radio plays. <laughs> like, I, t- I pitched this idea to my sister, who was going to be the prosthetics and makeup artist on Cosmic Coffee. My sister, Casey, she tells it like it is. She should have her own podcast. The thing is, she thinks they're a waste of time. <laughs> Nevertheless, I talked to Casey about this. And she said, Colin, 
No one's gonna listen to your radio play. People don't listen to radio plays. I mean, if we if we put this on the on the podcast feed, if we put a radio play on the podcast feed, you know, maybe potentially that's a way to distribute uh, a radio play. Like I said, my sister doesn't like audio media unless it's music. So maybe my sister's in Lame. the maybe my sister's in the minority here. But listeners, if you want us to do a radio play of Cosmic Coffee, comment. In our YouTube section or whatever platform you're listening to, tell us we want to hear Cosmic Coffee. We want to hear it. We want to hear Cosmic Coffee, not see it, hear it. We want to hear Cosmic Coffee. If you think it's a dumb idea, though, please comment. Like like I said, the, the goal for Stray Dog Film Lounge is to build a discourse about filmmaking. We want to see comments under our YouTube podcast. We want people to discuss the points that we make in this podcast. And we want to hear what works and what doesn't. So if you guys think that a radio play of Cosmic Coffee is a good idea, something that you would like, then please tell us that. However, if you're on Casey Wheel's side and you think that radio plays are stupid and that no one listens to them and that we would be wasting our time doing a radio play, please let us know. Okay, I'm going to make a case. Look, I love Casey. She's great. And nothing against her whatsoever. Smart woman. Mm-hmm. However, I am going to disagree and just say that I don't know about modern day, but there's a fantastic Canadian uh, horror radio show that was from the 80s. It's called Nightfall, and a lot of it is on YouTube. Um, and some of them are just actually terrifying. So it's they were radio plays. And it was a famous thing. It had a little over 100 episodes. So I would say that, I mean, there's definitely an audience for it. I think radio plays do kind of exist in different form. Like, doesn't Audible have, like, their Audible originals? Like, aren't those basically oh, yeah. radio plays? No, they they yeah. have, like, a Batman like, series. Are... Yeah, there's a there's a Batman audio thing on, on HBO Max for some reason. Yeah. Yeah, HBO Max. Can you listen to that with your phone screen turned off how do you listen to maybe there's an hbo max app that you can access on your phone yeah but like can you i i've never i haven't actually used it like can i like could i listen to it in the car is what i'm asking or would i have to have the app open with the screen on you know you probably would have to have it open yeah see that sounds like inconvenient i really think a podcast platform makes the most sense for a radio play type thing yes Along that line, let's talk about our next episode. Next week is Mario Week. It's me, Mario. <laughs> oh, should we say Mushroom Kingdom? Here we come. It's a me, a Chris Pratt. I'm gonna plug in my ears every time he talks. <laughs> yeah. So we're not just talking about the new Illumination Chris Pratt Mario. We're also going to be talking about the 1993. Super Mario Brothers the movie and then also the Super Mario Brothers movie 2023 and comparing and contrasting because we all like Mario. (laughs) We love Mario on this podcast. We are big fans of Mario. We are pro Mario. We're very excited about this. Let's go. Like always, everyone, thank you so much for listening to this episode. We would love to hear your feedback. 
Do you like us talking about the movies that we've seen this week, or do you think we're wasting your time? <laughs> Let us know. As always, thank you so much for listening, and we'll hear from you next week. Take care, everyone. Bye. Bye.